Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. Welcome, all you hearers of Scripture, dear brothers and sisters. Today we hear the closing of Abraham's story and Scripture's comedic lack of interest in Isaac's life. There isn't much to report on Isaac's dealings, so we quickly move on to our new central characters of Esau and Jacob. We aren't completely through with Isaac, but Scripture is funny in the way it introduces us to the young and promising character of Isaac, only to forget about him in the next chapter and move on to a story about his children. We expect to hear of Isaac's adventures and successes, but Scripture has other plans. Let us hear the story. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuach. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Chanok, Abidah, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. So this is one of those places that I believe it is really important to hear the meaning of the names uh, to bring additional clarity to what the authors are intending us to hear. However, it's also important to recognize the similarity of this chapter to chapter 10 of Genesis, which we'll touch on more later. In chapter 10 of Genesis, we hear the table of nations, as it's often called, which is an elaboration on how many of the nations that were prominent in the history of the people group that this story came out of were all originally part of one family. And in chapter 10 of Genesis, we hear that that's Noah's family. So here, at the end of Abraham's cycle, we are essentially getting the layout of the nations that can trace their lineage back to him. It's like a retelling, in a way, of Genesis 10, with different content, but the same concept. But regardless, I want to provide the meaning of the names so that we at least have a degree of faithfulness to the original language and we can hear what's happening. So Abraham's wife's name, Ketra, comes from the root katar, which is a verb that refers to the burning smoke of a sacrificial offering. And this is a thing that a lot of people tend to forget. They think that Abraham had two uh, partners in his life, Sarah and Hagar, and they often forget about this third one. And he, so he did have concubines and he spawned many nations uh, nations aside from the ones that came through Isaac and Ishmael. It's important not to miss this detail. Right, and Qatar also refers to incense, as in temple worship. This, along with the sacrificial meaning, is extremely evocative. The text also says that he added a wife. The Hebrew has Y Yosef, which literally means, and he added. So this is completely Abraham's doing, which, according to scripture, is not good. Remember the previous chapter where Abraham's servant relied on God 
to appoint Rebekah for Isaac. Here it's clear that it was God who was working in that instance. But in this instance, it's completely opposite. It's not that Abraham gets remarried in a valid way. He adds Keturah to the mix. And when we consider the temple imagery in her name, I can't help but be reminded of how Israel will go from a pastoral shepherd society in the wilderness of Sinai to a Babylon-esque kingdom complete with a palace temple complex. This is a sad foreshadowing of how Israel will add in the invalid and anti-scriptural temple into their society, something that was their own doing and not commanded by God. So the first son that comes from Ketra, his name is Zimran, which comes from the root Zamar, which means to make music or sing in praise to God. It occurs most frequently in the Psalms, as one would imagine. The next son's name is Jokshan and comes from the root Yakosh, which means to lay a bait or a lure. The following two names seem connected to the same root and perhaps foreshadow Jacob and Esau's relationship. So the following two names are Medan and Midian. Both of these words, despite their slightly different spelling and sound, mean strife, contention, or discord, and come from the root din, which means to judge. It's also good to note that Midian is a place name that will be later associated with the Levites, who our listeners are probably already aware of as the priestly class in Israelite society. Again, it's that temple imagery. Uh, next, we have Yishbak which has the connotation of one who allows something to be as it is. I mean, quite literally, just to leave something, which could perhaps refer to the prolonged and perhaps perennial problem of the palace temple complex. And the last name is Shuach, and it means to sink down. We then hear that Jokshan fathered Sheba, which sounds like the Sheba from Beersheba that we talked about in a previous episode, but the spelling is different here. It seems like this is probably just a place name for a region, such as the land of Sheba that the queen of Sheba is from. This is the same uh, spelling for Sheba. Jokshan also fathered Dedan, which likewise seems to only be evocative of the nation that comes later. It doesn't seem to have any other meaning. We hear that the sons of Dedan were the Asherites, whose name is evocative of being straight and forward and prosperous, so to speak. The Letushites whose name is evocative of being sharpened or wetted, and the Leumim, whose name simply denotes people in general. The text goes on to say that the sons of Midian were Epha, which means darkness, then Epher, which comes from afar, for dust, then Chanok, which is essentially the same name from Genesis 4's Enoch, and this name comes from the root which denotes the mouth's tasting, like the palate in the mouth. Next is Abidah, which means my father knows, and el da'a, which means God knows, but it's emphatic with that extra A vowel at the end. So it's like saying God especially knows, uh, which is an important detail as it's compared to uh, the name that comes just before it. So abida is my father knows, el da'a is God surely knows, or God especially knows. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. 
the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahairoi. Interestingly, the children that Keturah bore to Abraham are not mentioned when Abraham is buried in the cave of Machpelah. The text seems to suggest that they are, in a sense, illegitimate children, as opposed to Isaac especially. This is highlighted when Abraham sends the sons of his concubines away from Isaac, and the text also goes on to say that he gave all that he had to Isaac, but to his sons he gave gifts. Ishmael appears, perhaps because he is technically the firstborn, but Isaac remains Abraham's only legitimate offspring. We see a play on this subversion of roles later on with the blessing of Isaac's younger son Jacob, as opposed to his firstborn Esau. We mentioned in our last episode that it's significant that Abraham purchased the burial grounds from Ephron. Ephron's name comes from the Hebrew afar for dust. So just like Sarah in the last chapter, Abraham too is returning to dust, as all humans will. No matter Abraham's acts of faith or obedience, he is human. Unlike other mythologies and religious stories, the progenitor does not become godlike in the biblical story. Abraham is human, and he returns to dust, just like every other human. Remember the Bible's tendency to restrict us from making culture heroes out of its characters. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaiot, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael's firstborn is Nebioth, which comes from Nabat and has the connotation of looking at something reverently. In this sense, it reminds me of the attitude Eve had when Cain was born. That might be overreaching a bit, but I feel it's worth a mention nonetheless. Kedar means to be dark, or perhaps to mourn. Abdel means God mourns. Mibzam means from the spice, so we return to that type of incense imagery, perhaps. Mishma means from the hearing, as it is ultimately from Shama, which is also the same root uh, from which Ishmael's name is from. Duma means silence, and Masa refers to a load or a burden. The next name is Hadad, which means to be sharp or keen. And then we have Tema, which sounds somewhat like the occurrences of Tame, which is to be or become unclean, or it can also mean to defile. Uh, next, we have Yetur from Tur, which means a row, um, and it also is similar to Tur, uh, which means to seek out or to spy. 
And then we have nafish, which is uh, identical to nafesh, the life or the living thing in Hebrew. And then we have kedama, from the root meaning eastward or east. In many ways, this section is similar to the Table of Nations in Genesis 10. And it's not just the genealogies, but about how this family line descending from Abraham becomes divided. Most of these tribes and clans will become fierce opponents of the Israelites later on in the story. In verse 16, the text distinguishes the detail that Ishmael produces 12 princes according to each of their tribes. I think this one is pretty obvious, but it is a detail that I wanted to mention. This is a clear parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel that come later in the Torah. The last footnote in Ishmael's story is to say that he fell against his kinsmen. The original Hebrew has nafal, which is where we had the nephilim, the falling ones. In other words, Ishmael seems to have died, as many lofty princes do, by the sword of battle. This seems to be implied by the text. Yeah, I think it's purposefully ambiguous. Instead of repeating the fact that he simply died, it uses this verb. It can mean what you implied, Blaze, but the verb nafal also has a variety of other uses in the Old Testament. It can mean to fall into a deep sleep, which is evocative of death. It can also mean to fall away from something. This is the meaning that makes sense to me. Ishmael and his mother were cast out of Abraham's household due to Sarah's jealous behavior, but he returns to bury his father. Then, after his father is dead, he, and subsequently his people, spread out between Egypt and Assyria. He falls away from the nation of Israel. And he and his people eventually constitute a group of people that could have been united with Abraham's direct descendants, but they, like Ishmael, once again, in the fall, they fell away, so to speak. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the other shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body, like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So this common theme that we saw in the text of the nations being split up occurs again here with the story of Jacob and Esau's birth. First of all, Rebekah is barren, as was Sarah. All Isaac does is pray, that is to ask God for her to conceive. God grants this according to his will, and Isaac doesn't go out and sleep with a concubine in order to have a son like his father did. 
No, no, he waits for the promise. His character is indicative to the fact that in the Bible, the progeny is expressly God's gift and really has nothing to do with human workings. And it took a long time. It took 20 years. Remember that Isaac was 40 when he was married to Rebekah, but she does not bear him children until he was 60. It's an important thing to keep in mind. This imagery that's being brought together here is really interesting. We discussed in our previous episode that Rebecca's name comes from a root meaning to tie up the same way one ties up cattle. It seems that this imagery of being tied up is connected to the tumult of the two children in Rebecca's womb and Jacob grasping at his brother's heel upon birth. On top of all of this, Rebecca's father's name, Bethuel, means destroyed of God. So even though Rebecca was delivered to Isaac as a wife, and the situation is generally positive and fruitful, the text is foreshadowing the negativity of the future stories with all of this imagery. At the very least, we should see this as another instance of the Bible being strikingly self-aware. The remark that the older will serve the younger is another moment where God usurps the worldly order. This is obviously against the grain, and it's a warning to the hearers of Scripture that God does not operate as we do. In this sense, we can never be truly comfortable with worldly power because those under us could at any time usurp even us if we get too comfortable. This is what happens with Esau and Jacob. Esau was technically the firstborn, but Jacob usurps him. This is the lesson that Paul applies to the Jews in his letter to the Romans. The Jews may be the elder in that case, but the Gentiles were, in a sense, taking over the inheritance. Yeah, and the text is so forceful, it is unmissable in the original Hebrew. We should already understand the cultural significance of the firstborn, but the text calls Esau not the firstborn, but the chief. It's translated a bit odd in English, but it really says, Out came the chief, a bloody one, or one of blood, covered with hair like a cloak. And that word for cloak is not a general word. It is specifically a cloak of honor, like a person of regal importance would wear. And all of this is tied into his name, which can be taken a lot of different directions. It comes from the root asa, which simply means to do or to make something or to accomplish. And his name is this verb in the passive participle form. So it is one who is made or accomplished, which is, of course, evocative of the other quote-unquote made man from Genesis 2. There is a lot going on here. It's another one of those resets which we've talked about in the past. We have the end of a cycle and this new icon of a man. We have a person who goes through the ringer with God, learns a lot of valuable lessons, and they're recorded in the scroll for our learning as an example to us. And then at the end of that cycle, we have new characters, a new man, new potential for peace uh, and shalom. And we know that because of the word choices being made by the authors that connect this occurrence in the story back to uh, the original story which was told in Genesis 1 through 2 about the creation of the universe and everything being at peace in the garden. However, the way that Esau is being made here and the imagery that is connecting it to that original story, it has like a dark hue to it, you know. What baby is born with a cloak of hair so hairy and matted with blood like it's kind of negative imagery that at the same time connects it back to the imagery of creation so it's sort of manipulated in a sense to 
perhaps communicate to us that this again is uh, a potential place for humans to act correctly and usher in an era of shalom. But uh, just like the serpent, humans are uh, smooth, they're slick, they're beguiling, and they ultimately chase after their own desires. Esau's name in Hebrew also refers to something rough, and he comes out red. Now, that, that word rough, it, it literally means something that is worn. So, um, you know, kind of like a, a worn garment, so to speak. So he comes out hairy, kind of like a, a worn garment, and that's where he gets his name. Uh, and he comes out red, which is important because in Hebrew, just a reminder, the word Adam, to be red, is identical to Adam, the word for man. So the introduction of Esau is a reintroduction of Adam. This will become important later when Esau loses his inheritance in a strikingly similar way as Adam in the garden. Esau is also said to be a, a mighty hunter as opposed to Jacob who is peaceful or more correctly a complete man living in a tent as a shepherd. The word used here is tam, which is the same one that is used for Job to describe him being blameless. Here it can certainly remind us of Isaac and Ishmael, but there's a twist. Isaac favors Esau because of the game he brings, but Rebekah loves Jacob, although there isn't really a reason that is given for that. Yeah, there is a real theme of satiation here, like being satisfied in your gut from desirable food. In satiation, hunger is another common temptation that our biblical characters face. They want tasty food. It's comedically relatable, but it makes it all the more relevant for us to hear the example. Because just like Isaac preferred Esau because of the tasty food that he brought him, Esau is tempted by the desires of his stomach. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Here there's an interesting play on words with Adam ha-Adam, the red red, referring to the stew Jacob is cooking. This becomes Esau's function as he sells his birthright for the sake of food. It's an obviously impulsive and foolish thing to do, but it calls to mind the loss of paradise in the garden for the promise of the fruit of knowledge. Jacob exhibits a similar cunningness to the serpent in Genesis 3 by his sleazy attempts to take advantage of his brother's impulsive tendencies. Two chapters from now, we will get another serpent-esque interaction where Rebekah and Jacob elaborately trick Isaac into giving his inheritance to Jacob instead of Esau, the firstborn of Isaac. Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff going on in this passage alone, and I don't think we're going to do it justice here, but I do want to point out some things that perhaps will encourage our listeners to go and look into it more on their own. The first thing that I want to point out is that in verse 39, the text says that Jacob is cooking stew, which is the word nazid in Hebrew, 
And we hear that Esau comes in and is faint. And the idea in Hebrew is that he is famished. Uh, he is not lucid. He, you know, is about to pass out. That's the idea. So in the next verse, when Esau asks Jacob for some of what he is cooking, he doesn't seem to recognize it as stew, or at least the text went out of its way to use different words in Esau's dialogue. Remember, stories such as this one are often made up of narration and dialogue. So the narration is to the hearer of the text and the dialogue is um, for us to hear and for the characters in the story to communicate with each other. So in Esau's dialogue, he doesn't call it stew. Uh, like Blaze said, he calls it the red, the red. This detail is something that interpreters have clamored over for an explanation. I don't think I've hit the nail quite on the head by any means, but I do think it is significant that Esau does not refer to it as stew or as lentils, which we later hear is indeed what it is. He calls it, again, the red, the red. When he inquires of Jacob, the verb used is one of a kind from the Old Testament. It only occurs here. It is from the root la'at, which has the connotation of swallowing something greedily. So it's a really raw, vulnerable image. He comes in faint, and he says, please make me swallow up from this red red. And it's in the hyphial form, so he's asking Jacob to perform the act. He's not saying, prepare me a meal. He's saying, like, shove this down my throat. I need it. It's really extreme. It's almost as if Esau is so weary and delusional that he thinks this stew is not stew, but blood. Because please remember that the word Adam for the red is not the color red as this idea we have, and we assigned that word to that color, but it is a constructed noun meaning something like that which is blood-like, because it's the color of blood. So why would he be begging to be fed blood? Well, because blood is life. As God says, you may eat of the animals, but do not eat their life, which is their blood. And Esau is a hunter, likely well aware of the life properties of blood. And this makes sense that he would be begging for this life-giving blood because he himself was described as an especially bloody, hairy baby. So this bloodiness is wrapped up in his identity, and he is begging to be satiated by it because... According to the next verse, he thinks he is going to die. We know he is probably just overreacting like a kid who gets a bloody knee from a skateboarding accident and thinks they're going to die. But functionally, this is what's going on here. He thinks he's going to die, so he begs his brother to feed him from what he thinks is a pot of blood that could give him life. And he is so desperate that he gives up his mantle and honor and station as firstborn. Again, these are just the dots that I'm connecting. I think it is a highly symbolic and poetic passage, and I encourage you all to look into it more and do some research into the Hebrew. But finally, Esau eats the soup that is about as far from blood soup as you can get. I mean, it's vegetarian. It's just lentils. However, it is a hearty meal. So Esau feels better, and he goes on about his day. Then we are told that he despised or held contempt toward his birthright. So I think it's safe to assume that Esau realizes he was swindled. So much for Shalom. And that concludes this week's episode. Talk to you all next week, God willing. And all of you who are teachers or students, most of you are starting your semester this week or uh, in the next week. So I pray you have a fruitful semester and may the Lord bless your labors. Alhamdulillah.
This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.